This is episode 97 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm talking with Michigan American Saddlebred historian Heidi Madsen. Heidi has had a love affair with horses since she was a small child, and that passion for horses grew over the years. In 1991, Heidi was introduced to the beautiful American Saddlebred, and that love of the breed is still very strong some 30 years later. Heidi has worked at some of the largest American saddlebred farms in Michigan. She first started out as a groom for Taylor Creek Stables and then was a riding instructor at Jeff Nevitt Stables in Linden at Sailaway Farms. Heidi has also been involved with the American Saddlebred Horse Breeders Association and is currently working on the youth committee. Heidi has always been a lover of history and when the idea for her book came about to combine the two things she loves most, history and the American saddlebred, well, she was in. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm excited to have fellow author Heidi Madsen on the show with me. Hi, Heidi. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. This is a real pleasure. I've been really excited about this. I'm excited to have you. And as I was reading through your bio and doing some research in preparation for the podcast, I found out that we're both fellow Michiganders. I grew up in Clarkston and you are from Clinton. So it's so nice to talk to someone from my home state. As people know who listen to the show or if you're new to the show, how I always like to start out the conversation is asking how authors' love affair with horses began. So Heidi, can you share a little bit about that with us? My love affair probably started from my mother. My mother grew up in Manistee, Michigan, so we would go trail riding all the time. We would go almost every weekend. We would go, and I just could not get enough. I mean, I wanted to like be on a horse all the time. Like I had briar horses. I mean, I was just horse crazy. <laughs> and then friends of ours uh, up in Manistee, he had the full brother to one of the Cly- Budweiser Clydesdales. And he had a Shetland pony that was given to me by the name of Charlie. And Charlie was a little spotted thing. He was a real turd. Um, <laughs> but he taught me how to ride. He, We would go and we would just run like the like the wind out there and all that my mom she couldn't even watch because it would just terrify her <laughs> but I loved him he lived to be the ripe old age of I think it was like 38 oh wow that's amazing yeah, he lived a long long time but that horse taught me a lot he taught me about how to take care of a horse and basically really how to ride I used to ride him western saddle and then just bareback <laughs> and we would just go and just I would be in the saddle for hours and I would get out and I would smell like horse and I just didn't care you know it just it was just it was like being in heaven so yeah so from a very young age I would say probably six or seven is when it started they've always been in my life and probably will continue till I take my last breath on this earth so (laughs) well we share that for sure it's in the genes and how cool that you got to share that passion with your mom and I love your story about the pony because boy those ponies they sure can be tricky but but they, they do they sure make you a great equestrian I'm really interested in this because 
you have been involved with the American Saddlebred Horse for more than 25 years. Talk to us a little bit about how that breed came into your life and then the work that you've done with the breed in the industry because you've done quite a bit. Yes, I have. Now, prior to this, I had been doing quarter horses. Mm. So I knew absolutely nothing about the American Saddlebred Horse. I just thought it was a horse. It was chestnut and pretty. And I'm like, yes, this is for me. But I had no idea. You know, when you're a kid, you think a horse is a horse is a horse. Right. You know, there's no, they don't, there's not like one breed specific. To a kid, it's all the same. And so I really didn't know anything about the American Saddlebred. And it was just working as a groom and all that, that I started to learn about the breed and confirmation and all this kind of stuff. And I worked for a farm called Taylor Creek Stables, and they are still in existence. They are in, in Davis and Michigan now. They're probably one of the top saddlebred barns in Michigan and very dear friends of mine. So basically, I worked as a groom. I got horses ready to be worked, whether that was being long line, jogged, ridden, um, and then I helped prepare for shows. And then they moved down to Oakland, Michigan. And then I'm like, okay, now what do I do? And so I found another farm, Pine Hollow Farms in Grand Blanc, which the farm is no longer there. It's now Pine Hollow Estates. Mm. And I took lessons there, kind of was like the barn rat. I would help out with whatever needed to, you know, a friend of mine was the, was the colt trainer. And so I would help out with breeding and catching mares and, you know, helping them with the lesson program or just helping them with the kids in general. And then I went from there over to a friend of mine, um, Jeff Nevitt Stables at Sailaway Farm in Linden, and I ended up being um, a riding instructor. Mm. And I probably taught anywhere between 50 to 60 lessons a week. Um, and that was riding, driving, Western, whatever needed to be taught, I would kind of, you know, take over. So actually, what's great is all these uh places that you're naming in Michigan are, are ringing bells and making me making me like reminisce about all these places because I've been to many of them. So the saddlebreds just sort of wound up in your life because there were farms close to you that had saddlebreds where you could get Basically, a job? yeah. I okay. mean, yeah. It's really interesting how a particular kind of horse winds up in your life. Often it's who you first start taking lessons with or, you know, the breed that your trainer actually does and the saddlebred fell into your life, which is really cool. But I think sometimes people, maybe people who don't have horses that might listen to this podcast don't understand is each breed and each discipline has its own language and history and different kinds of tack. So when you choose a specific breed, there's like this whole segment to learn. And if you move to another one, there's this whole other area to learn. Yeah. But you, it seems to me that you really fell in love with the saddlebreds, even though you had a background with a different breed because you're doing all this amazing work in the industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about what what you're doing with the Saddlebred Associations in Michigan? You know, I try to help out as much as I can with anything like our Ashton Horse Show, which is our American Saddlebred Horse Association of Michigan. We have a fall show that we put on. And so I last year developed an award. I wanted to do something. And so I developed an award called the Francis Dodge Sportsmanship Award. Now, for those of you that don't know, Francis Dodge had Dodge Stables down in, down in, in Rochester. Um, and she had the famous iconic wing commander. I wanted to do something because she was, you know, a lady that really loved her horses. Um, and she loved talking to other people about her horses. Um, and she had good sportsmanship in and out of the ring. And I just felt that she needed to be honored. Her daughter, Judy, is a very, very dear friend of mine. And I kind of passed it 
by her and said, you know, what do you think? And she said, it's about time that somebody honors my mother. And so I've done that. I donate stuff for, you know, like the auctions, you know, anything to do with the kids here in Michigan, you know, like youth, I, you know, I try to get as as involved as I possibly can. Anybody needs any help with anything. I'm the first one to raise my hand. That is awesome. Yeah, you're giving giving back to the community that you love. And you're doing a real service for the Saddlebred history and industry in Michigan. Let's talk about your book, your first book, and then we can get into where you're going with the second. But talk to us about your first book, which focuses on Saddlebreds in Michigan. Well, my first book, my first book, uh, my girlfriend and I, we were out on the golf course golfing, which my golf game is not that great, but... We went out and, you know, when she shows horses too, and she said to me, you should write a book. And I looked at her and I thought, you are crazy woman. I, <laughs> I failed my creative writing class in high school twice. And I said, I am, there's just no way that I'm even going to even get, come close to writing a book. Well, at the time I called my, my dear friend who is gone now, Lynn Weatherman. He was the historian at the American Saddlebred Association in Lexington at the horse park. And I was calling him for something else and all that. And I said, hey, do you want to hear this crazy story? No, sure. And I said, somebody wants me to write a book about the history of the Saddlebred in Michigan. And no sooner did I have it out of my mouth. And Lynn says, do it. And I thought, oh, boy, here I thought he was going to discourage me and say, you know, no, don't do it. But he said, do it. And we talked on the phone for our average three hours, which is our, our used to be our normal conversations. And. About four days later, I get all these FedEx packages in the mail and they were research. And he says, and he had a note in it. And I saved the note to the state and it says, here you go. Here's your start. And I thought, oh boy. I says, I guess this is my sign of saying this is what I'm going to do. When I had talked to Lynn, he said that a book like this had never been written before, ever. He said anywhere that he knows of, any other state, nothing like that. There have been books on saddlebreds. Judy Ottinger has done a beautiful book. It's one of my favorites. But it it just talks about like the different gates of the horse, the shows, the mares, breeding, stallions, things like that. Nothing that's specific to history, to the horses that have, you know, that are here. And so as I started digging into the research, I was like shocked at what I found. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Probably at one time, not at one time, but probably collectively, there used to be 75 saddlebred farms in Michigan. Oh, wow. They were all the way from way past the bridge up in Iron Mountain, all the way down to almost the Ohio border. And they were like just spread out everywhere. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, I, here I only thought there was maybe, you know, a couple farms here and a couple farms there. But it it was really quite shocking how they were spread out. And so I just started, I felt like an archaeologist. I started digging and looking into things and old magazines and just finding farms. I would make a list of all the farms that I found and then kind of go and research each farm and all that. Now, my first book took me 10 years to do because <laughs> there was so much to do. I mean, it, it was, and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, thank God I had Lynn for just a short period of time. He passed away before my book could, you know, where it was published, but it was just, you know, the not knowing, you know, like, oh my God, you know, it, you know, and I had to make sure everything was verified and, and just a lot of fact checking. Mm-hmm. So let, let me ask you, how did you lay out this book? So like, tell me the story that you're telling and, and hold up the cover and tell us what it's called. 
Uh, oh, how, did, sure. how did you decide to lay this out and tell the story? I mean, is it chronological? Is it by farm? Uh, talk to us about how you crafted the story. It's not really chronological. It's just by however many farms I could find and all the information that, that I could get on the farm. You know, because way back when I learned, even with my second one, people really didn't advertise a whole lot, mm -hmm. like in magazines and things like that. So a lot of it was like word of mouth, talking to somebody that I that I maybe knew and they would say, Oh, Hey, I've been to that farm. And, but they really couldn't remember like the horses they had were some, some of the farms had big ads in some of the magazines. Like I do saddle and bridle mm -hmm. magazine. And so there's usually three or four pages of some of the old farms and all that in there. So I can kind of get some information from that, get on ASHA, which is the American Saddlebred Horse Association. Well, now it's the Breeders Association. I can get on and I can research pedigrees, who had the horse before, and this is Wing Commander that's on the cover. And my my very dear friend, Jim Walls, who is a fabulous equine artist, he already had this drew up, but I wanted to use it because the Wing Commander is iconic with Michigan. So I said, you know, Jim, can I use this? He was beyond thrilled. So, so that's who was on my cover. That's awesome. And it's a beautiful cover. Now, so, so, so I understand. So the chapters basically lay out the histories and the breeding programs and, and of the farms that you've found. Yeah, so you went like, and interviewed them. Yeah. Right. Like in this book, it's just by the farms that I researched, like the farms that I, I went through and I found a lot of information on. I just did by however if I found five farms or, you know, 10 farms or whatever, those 10 farms were going in the book. Got and it. I was able to find a lot of research at that time about these farms. A lot of people were still living, you know, and still could remember. A lot of it was word of mouth. Everybody knew that I was doing this book. So it wasn't a shock when I when they would get a phone call or email or a text and all that and saying, hey, you know, do you know this farm? I need some information. And sure enough, somebody would step up to the plate and send me something or you know, we would do a phone interview or, you know, I would come out and do a person to person. So that was great. I mean, that really kind of helped fill in the blanks. Yeah. And that's you know, the horse industry for sure. I mean, we, you know, yeah. A, you're doing a service and you're telling the stories of the, the farms and the history of the saddlebred in Michigan, who wouldn't want to be a part of that. But also I find that equestrians are very helpful and they want to share information and they're, we like to talk about our horses, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, that was the whole, you know, the whole, point of the book was I wanted to preserve that history Absolutely. I mean I'm a history nerd myself and so I really wanted to get something on on paper you know that really preserved what we had here because it's really I mean it's quite impressive I mean I've mm -hmm. had a lot of people you know email me and say I've lived here my whole life and never knew any of this stuff that's you know, awesome I never knew that some of these stallions were here or, you know some of the the broodmares that were here and, you know, it always makes me smile a little bit. I get a little teary eyed because, you know, I, it's, you know, people like that, that I, you know, I appreciate, you know, them telling me that I've done a great job and, you know, this should have been done a long time ago. I'm like, yeah, I know, but, you know, I didn't think anything of it at the time. I just, you know, it was kind of on the back burner, but, you know, I, you know, I kind of got the fire fuel underneath me to, you know, to get it going. And I'm glad I did. So what is the message in, in, in this particular book that you really want to get across to your readers? I mean, yes, there's a rich history for Saddlebred Farms in Michigan, but is there, is there something else you want to help advocate um, for, for the breed or? Well, 
my whole goal in the beginning, even with my first book and all that, is I want people to kind of get the bug and I want them to look into their own state mm. with the saddlebred and and start writing kind of like a like a like a an encyclopedia of the American saddlebred. Cool. Um, because it's all out there. I mean, I friends of mine gave me I bet you I have probably close to a hundred piles of old book like magazines, National Horseman, Saddle and Bridal, Horse World, and going through there, there in fact I came across one and all that. There were six pages of some farm in um California. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, and it was just information after information. It's out there and people just have to dig for it. So that was my my goal, and that's still my goal is that somebody will take up the reins and write the history of their of the American saddlebred in their state, whether it be Ohio, you know, California, wherever, it's out there. They just have to dig for it. Cool. And that's the hard part. And, and taking the time to do that, I've had people say, well, why don't you do it? I'm like, no, I don't, you know, that's, you know, I did Michigan because I've lived here. And so I know, I know Michigan's history. I don't know anything about like, the history of like Ohio or California or, you know, Colorado. I mean, I don't know any of that stuff, but it have to be somebody that actually lives there that would know. But that's basically my goal is to have everybody just take up the pen and paper and write about the saddlebred. And there's, I mean, I, I bet you, you could probably get at least 30 books out of, I mean, each state. I mean, Kentucky alone would be a whole encyclopedia, but yeah. that's, you <laughs> yeah. know, you know, but there's other states out there. California, they have a rich history of of the American saddlebred. So somebody just has to want to do it. You know, and that's the hard part is getting somebody to get in because it's a lot of work. Yeah, I could see you definitely putting together a, you know, promotion to advocate for this because there there are some writers out there. There are definitely writers out there writing about saddlebreds. I mean, uh, yeah. I had Susan Archer on the show. Have you met Sue Archer or do you know uh, her? I haven't met her, but we're friends on Facebook and I have all her books. Yeah. She, she writes about the American celebrant. There is an active fan base for people who want information about celebrant. So you could put together a Facebook group and invite people and just like put a campaign together about telling the history of the celebrants. And for you, what, what about the celebrant has your heart? I mean, I really hear your passion about the celebrants. What about them just grabs your heart they're well obviously their beauty but their athletic ability their their temperament their heart I mean you can see when you go into a show ring and all that you could watch a certain horse and they just love what they do you know Mm -hmm. it that's the kind of that's the kind of horse that I love that just has that will put everything into it and just shows their you know their little heart out for their you know themselves you know their rider and all that and boy when they get that tricolor ribbon you it just the whole persona of the horse changes mm-hmm. but it's their heart it's their athletic ability it's you know they're smart they're kind they're great kids horses mm-hmm. it's a combination of all kinds of things you know mm-hmm. that i just love there's just something about the horse that has that captured me from the very first moment that i saw imperator and Don Harris show, I was hooked. I mean, I, it was, it was the weirdest thing I have ever encountered. It was just like, you know, this is it. And here I am 30 years later. That's awesome. I, I like completely believe that like your soul or your spirit or the universe or whatever guides you towards your passion. And when you know it, you know it, and then you just 
click in and, and you run with it. And, and that's yeah. obviously what you've done. Now going yeah. back to the first book, how, how did you approach publishing this? Did you go like, independent publishing or did you work with a traditional publisher? What, what was your process there? I, the hard part was after I got everything done, then I had to go through and I had to really research the publishing company. There's a lot. My big thing was reading the reviews of the authors that had things published. So I was like, you know, I would make a list of the ones that I liked and then the ones that, you know, that kind of went from the like list onto the unlike list. And, you know, and then finally I came across Tate Publishing and they were based out of Oklahoma and very easy to work with. I mean, my first time publishing a book, I had no idea what to expect. They sent me all this stuff and said, this is how you're supposed to send it. It was easy. I mean, it, I didn't, wasn't stressed or anything like that. And then they decided to go belly up and went and um, the owners got charged for embezzlement. Oh no. It was a a real mess for about a whole year and all that. There was a bunch of us authors that were trying to get our manuscripts back. Thankfully, my book was already published when this all this happened, but I had all my files on a CD that they had. And I was trying to get that back because I wanted to do a self-publishing. A friend of mine had told me about self-publishing and I said, okay, She's like, we're going to have to try to get your original files back. And they tried charging us for it. And it was a real mess. Um, That's so interesting. So did you, so this was kind of like a traditional publisher and more of an indie, like a small press. And did you, you signed a contract with them. And sometimes those things happen where they have your intellectual property. So you had to fight to get that back when they went under. This is a, this is a story I've heard before, which is, which is kind of why I advocate for independently publishing your own books through the self-publishing platforms, because you own your everything and you retain the rights to everything. So you, you had that struggle right on the get. I did. I did. You know, I got a phone call from the Oklahoma um, attorney general called me and said, this is what's going on and this is what we need you to do. And so they sent, I had tons of paperwork I had to fill out. Oh my. Um, And it was everybody that had books published or we're going to have books published. I was like, oh boy. And I had to send all kinds of stuff. And then eventually I did get my, my stuff back. So I was able to do that. So, and I, cause and then some people were getting their discs back, but they were putting it in and they were, they were blank. Oh my goodness. So I'm panicking thinking, oh my gosh. So I, I put it in my, in my laptop and everything was on there, you know, breathe a sigh of relief and all that. But I felt bad for some of these other people who couldn't get any of their stuff back. And uh, so it was just, it, it was a real mess and it probably lasted probably about a year. I, you know, we were, you know, we all had to fill out um, forms and all kinds of stuff. So it was, it was a real mess and haven't, haven't heard anything back. They said, we probably will never get compensated for sending our money in, you know, to have it published, none of that stuff. So, you know, we, and and I belong to a um, Facebook page and it's called X, X, uh, ex-authors of Tate Publishing, and it's been pretty quiet on there. So there's been no development. So. My goodness. So what words of wisdom or warning would you give to aspiring authors who are who were are in you know with their f- first book looking for a publisher? What would you say after having come through this experience? I would say if I would have known back then what I know now, I probably would have talked to somebody who had a book that was through an independent publisher mm-hmm. and you know because I read all the reviews from Tate and I it all sounded great everybody said that we were great to work with 
had no problems. And so I took that as being, this is a great company. So I, w- I went ahead and called them. I talked to a um, publishing coordinator and all that. We clicked right on the phone right away. And I thought, okay, you know, but if I would have known what was going to happen after I had my book published, it, you know, I probably never would have done it. Now I know that I'm doing independent. And so I feel a little bit more confident that I'm not going to have any any problems. I mean, anything that happens, it's going to be obviously my fault mm-hmm. you know, for not doing it. But really research it, really talk to people that have have had a book published through certain companies and that and see how was their experience and all that with them. You know, mm-hmm. was it everything that they hoped it would be? Um, any problems, anything like that? You know, the more questions you ask, the better off you are. That's great advice. Yeah, I I like to hammer home on this podcast, educate, educate, educate yourself, because we're talking about intellectual property, you know, the creative right to put your work into the world through, you know, all the different formats that are becoming available to us. So to you got to be really careful, and you have to protect that because you like you said, it took 10 years to write your book. And then this company did some naughty things. And I'm so, so sorry that happened to you. And there was this possibility that you wouldn't have gotten your work back. And some of those other authors didn't. So thank yeah. you for sharing kind of, that. Kind of story. holding us hostage. Yeah. Really. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And how lucky are we now that we have the opportunity to do this work ourselves? It's a lot of work. Yes. And there's more education that we need to do, of course, but we own our property, our, our creative rights, our intellectual property. So I'm, I'm really glad you shared that because, you know, the, these things happen. And so you really yeah. have to, you have to watch, watch out and talk to other authors and see what they're doing and what works and what doesn't. And that's why we're built. That's why I'm having this podcast. So all of, all of our, you know, equine author community can come together and share knowledge and help each other out. So the, yeah. maybe less of these things will happen to each other. How are you reaching your readers? I mean, clearly you've got a built-in audience with the Michiganders who love Saddlebreds, but what what are you doing to to reach out to readers? Well, my book kind of basically takes on a life of its own. The book is sold in 11 countries. So I get fan mail. I get emails all the time from people from across the pond saying, I, you know, I read your book. I just absolutely love it. You know, Mm. everybody knows it's out there and I do. I do a lot of book updates, you know, updating people because sometimes people will say, you know, they'll message me and say, well, what's going on with the book? So I usually do a monthly book update saying, you know, this is where I'm at. And, you know, and so it kind of gives everybody a, a little idea. Everybody, I have a long, I have a long list of people that are on a waiting list to get my book. That's fantastic. So, so yeah. like a, you have like an email newsletter that you're sharing. Um, I don't really, it's not really an email newsletter. I just do FB page and then I have my, my book's website and the FB page. I mean, it's constantly fluctuating with all kinds of activity and people messaging me. And I share a lot of the stuff onto, I belong to all these celebrate groups mm. and my book updates go on to that. Um, and then that's, you know, carried out to how, however many members they have and things like that. So it's kind of basically taken on a life of its own. I mean, my first book, I have it at the Saddlebred Museum at the horse park. Fantastic. Uh, How did you make that happen? (laughs) Uh, Well, I called and I've been a longtime member of the museum and I called and I said, you know, what are the chances of me getting my book, you know, in there? And she's like, oh, sure. So I called and, and I sent, I think my first 10 copies. Let's just say I can't keep it in stock down there. That's awesome. That's so built in. Been, Who yeah. wouldn't want to buy a book when they're visiting the Saddlebred Museum about Saddlebreds? It's like a perfect yeah. place for your book to be for marketing. Yeah. yeah. 
and then last Christmas, somebody sent me a, uh, it was a screenshot of their laptop and my book was featured on the museum's webpage. That's great. All excited and all, you know, so it's like, it's things like that. I'm thrilled that my book is not, my first book is not forgotten. It's still there, but like I said, it's kind of basically taken on a life of its own. Yeah. So it's got quite a problem. That's, that's the good stuff. When, when things like that happen, that that's, that's what we want to have happen. And my, my impression of uh, Saddlebred folks is that they're incredibly supportive and they're like a really oh, yeah. active community and they really support people who are writing books about saddlebreds. I mean, that, that's what I got yeah. from my conversation with Sue Archer when she was on the show, uh, yes. that they really just support and buy and the, the museum supports and brings the, the books in. Yeah. I think that's really wonderful. So get in close with your breed organizations, ladies and gentlemen, writing about yes. horses I mean, and specific I mean, breeds. Yes. Yeah. I mean, truly, I mean, I, you know, some of the best, People I know are saddlebred people, and mm. I mean, and, and every year I go down to Lexington Junior League Horse Show, which is held at the horse park, mm-hmm. and I love seeing all my friends. And the first thing out of their, you know, how is the book and all that? I mean, you know, what's you know what's going on and you know things like that. I'm really the only one that's written a historical book on the saddlebred. Mm. I, I mean, because I really researched this before I started doing my first book. I thought, well, I'm going to kind of figure that, and I couldn't find anything that was even. It was just general stuff. Like, yeah. um, you know, there's books out there now, like Smith Lilly has a great book who I just, I'm a big fan of his and it's called Good Sportsmanship. And he talks about how to train colts and things like that with different equipment. And um, and then there's Gail Lampy, uh, who is the uh, head instructor at Williams Woods College in Fulton, Missouri. She's another one person that I just idolize. And she's got a book on saddle seat, which I have read. I don't know how many times from cover to cover and that talks about saddle seat riding and things like that, but never a book that's been just historically portrayed like mine. Oh you know, man, never- you know, I'm see, I, I see such possibility for what you're trying to create here. I mean, yeah, you took on Michigan, but I, you know, I feel like if you jumped into those saddlebred groups, I bet you, you could engage other people to take on the history of the celebrate in their state and write about it. I oh, mean, just, easily. yeah. Yeah. Share your successes. I mean, you could be the person that rolls this ball and gets things in motion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it takes something to do that and you have to generate it, but I hear you're passionate about it. So I feel like you could be the person that starts. It's like, okay, I did Michigan, pass it on to Ohio, Ohio, yeah. you do Ohio, pass it on to, you know, Kentucky, you know, Kentucky, right. you did this, pass it on to West Virginia. I don't know. You know, like you could get the ball rolling across the country and then like, that could be a whole conversation and a story about oh how gosh. this project got going. I see yeah. like, I just see like amazing possibility for this, you know, but it, t- it takes a spark to start the ball rolling. But I, I, I believe you could be the person to make that happen. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lady in California. She had a post on one of the Saddlebred pages that I that I like, and she had all these pictures and all that. I said you should get on. I said and look at the history of the saddlebred in California. I said I bet you twenty bucks and all that that you'd be able to find a load of. I mean, you you would you would be surprised at what you find when you dig when you well, start digging and asking questions. Great. So this is an opportunity to right. express their history, just be an advocate for the breed. So I, I think this is so cool. And my thing is, is people get the sat- American Saddlebred confused with the Tennessee Walking Horse. Mm. The Tennessee Walking Horse is the one that has the big lick. We are American Saddlebreds. They are born naturally where they just trot. There's no demise you know, behind it. It's all natural. I've watched babies out in the field and all that trot. You know, so people... 
will comment and they'll say, well, you know, this is really, you know, they have the big shoe and all that. I thought, no, that's the Tennessee walking horse. I, you know, I get really kind of miffed. That's not the word I would use, but um, when people take mistake the saddlebred for a Tennessee walking horse and it's like, no, it's, they're two different breeds. They, they trot differently. They're, you know, so, you know, I'm constantly having to do that when people will comment and they'll say, you know, about the, it's like, no, that's, that's the Tennessee walking horse. You know, the saddlebred as a whole, saddlebred is probably one of, mo one of the most versatile breeds out there. They do everything. They do Western, they do saddle seat, they do driving, they do endurance driving, they do uh, uh, cattle driving, uh, barrels. I have a girlfriend that's got, she's got one out in, out in Colorado and he does barrels. He's a barrel racer and bred incredibly well. They can do everything. Hunter jumper, dressage. Uh, Jim Khan. I mean, you name it, they can do it. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up. Like we talked earlier, breed breeds have different things and people get them mixed up. I think that uh, people that aren't familiar with gated horses kind of clump them all in the same they do. They category. Do. Yeah. So like, I'm right. so glad that you shared that, especially for people who are listening to the show, because on this show, we've got people and authors who are invested in all sorts of different breeds. So there's a lot of learning going on with the different breeds on this show too. So I'm oh, really, yeah, glad, for sure. really glad you, you mentioned know, that. You know, and one of the things that I, that I tell people and all that is, is if you're, if you're getting into saddlebreds or if you've been in a while, but you're not really quite sure of like about the breed, go and visit a saddlebred barn. Mm -hmm. Any, I, I bet you, if you were to, to make a phone call, I could list five barns and all that off the top of my head. That if you were to make a phone call and all that and say, I want to come visit and learn about the breed, they would say, when can you get here? You know, we, we as a saddlebred community love to show off our horses and love to educate people and tell them about the breed. And, you know, so I always tell people, the more you can educate yourself about things, the better, you know, it would be no different if I was into, if I had, was breeding dogs and I wanted to learn you know, about the Belgian Malawite, you know, I just wouldn't get the dog. I would go and talk to a breeder, be around the dog for a while, watch them kind of interact with, you know, that kind of thing. So I, you know, I always tell people, educate yourself, go visit a saddlebred bar and, and figure out what those horses get treated better than us humans. You know? <laughs> all, I, I like to believe that all horses get oh treated better than humans. Like I'll buy something for my horses that they need before I'll do anything for myself. Yeah. And I love how you say, educate yourself. Don't underestimate books. Like that's why you wrote this book to help educate people. So, you know, yes, there's the visiting of the horse. There's talking to people. There's plenty of places to get lost on the internet, but books are also a great resource of podcasts. Yeah. Like, uh, yes, definitely listen. And anytime you're interested in something new, whether it's a horse or a discipline or becoming an author, check out your resources and find out what the information is there. Now, I like to ask this question to of my authors okay. because all of our answers are a little different. For you, what has been the most difficult part of being an author? But then on the flip side, what's been the very best part for you? The worst part is... I can be somewhere and thinking, oh my gosh, I could get home and I could write a whole bunch. And I sit in front of my computer and my little icon just blinks, you know, <laughs> uh, I, writer's block uh, comes a lot. I, I mean, it's not a, you know, you hear people say I have writer's block and thinking, ah, that'll never happen to me. It happens to me quite a bit. I mean, it's just one of those things where either you either have the inkling to write or you don't. Sometimes I'll be sitting in front of my TV watching something and I'll have a pen and paper and just start writing stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's been the hardest because it's frustrating. I, what I have in my head is I need to get in onto paper and it always doesn't work that way. 
you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, please, can I just type something besides the, you know, <laughs> I mean, so I try to, you know, maybe read like a, a magazine or I go through some of my research and think, well, maybe something will trigger and I can get on it. And it's like nothing. I it just blank, you know. And then other times, if I sit at my desk and and have my laptop on, I like to write to Frank Sinatra. So I have my Frank Sinatra, my Pandora radio, and I'll put that on. And sometimes it just flows out of me like a river. I, I and then the other time I can't get two words out of myself, you know. Mm. So it's so it's very frustrating. It's not something that you just sit down and you just whip everything, you know, out on, you know, onto pages. Uh, it takes a lot of time and you have to have patience because otherwise if you don't then you're not really the, then this line of work or whatever isn't really for you so that's kind of been it's been a little tough and I've learned how to kind of deal with it a little bit mm -hmm. uh, and then the the happy part is when I have people that come up to me and say oh you're the lady that wrote the book on the on the saddlebred, especially when I go to some of the Michigan shows and all that, people will recognize me and, and say thank you for writing it. Or I've gotten mail or email um, saying thank you for writing such a nice book, nice, well-researched book. You know, and it makes me feel good that other people are enjoying my work because mm -hmm. it's not just for me. I wrote it for everybody to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the very best part. I mean, because once we've completed a project or a work and we put it out into the world, it's kind of not really ours anymore. It's for others to enjoy and learn from or escape with. So yeah, so I'm, I'm so glad you're having those experiences. Now, you've mentioned the second book a couple times. Uh, so what, you know, what are you curious about? What's next? Where are you heading? What are you thinking for the second book? Well, the... The second book wasn't wasn't really what I wanted to do. I told myself when I finished my first one, I said, if it takes me 10 years to finish this one, I'm going to be 94 till I get my second one done, but talked myself into doing a second book. And it was all the farms that I didn't get into my first book. It's going to probably be a coffee table style book. And how I did this one is I did farms of the past. I did mm -hmm. people of the past. And then I did the farms of today. So I kind of wanted to do a little bit of the past, present, and, you know, obviously the future and you know and so far it it worked out How, because when I started to say when I was going to do my second book I wasn't sure how what area I was going to go like how I was going to do it I I just had no idea I knew all the information was up here in my head but I didn't know how to like try to get it onto paper and try to like chronological and then my very dear friend who I absolutely adore Sina Bowling she is the she's the owner and trainer at Taylor Creek Farms or Stables gave me the idea she said well why don't you do it like this just how I described and I thought bingo that was it it was like a light bulb popped in my you know in my head and said and that's exactly how I've done it and it's worked out great the I've gotten more information on some of the farms that I didn't have for my first book, because like I said, arms in this one where my other one, I have a lot more. Um, and social media has been great. A lot of people have stepped up and said, hey, have you talked to so-and-so? Or, you know, or, you know, did you know about this farm and things like that? So, so that's been great. But this second book is going to be huge. So you said coffee table book. So this is going yeah. to be hardcover. You're, are you getting, it's going to be software. Are you getting yeah. pictures like for inside oh, yeah. of it? Okay. Uh, yeah. I so have, I have old pictures like from like 1930s. Oh, cool. <laughs> There's some, some pictures that are, I think I have a few that are from like the twenties. Mm-hmm. 
quality is still good. They told me when I did my first book that I could not have more than 10 pictures. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, that's not really going to work. Mm-hmm. And then my second book, I'm, I thought, I really want to have pictures because you can't tell the story without pictures. Right. I, I think pictures, especially when it's uh, the history of something, really yeah. helps uh, put you in you know, the place and the time and the moment. So are, exactly. you, are you working with like libraries and associations and um, newspapers to get rights to use the photos and things like that? that I, a lot of the people that I've contacted about the farms and all that, these are their personal photos. Oh, that they cool. Have so, yeah. and then Saddle and Bridal Magazine, who um, Chris and Jeff Thompson, they own the magazine. They have been extremely supportive mm-hmm. since I did my first book to my second one. I can call them and say, I need to use this ad and all that. And they'll be like, go for it. So I haven't really come up with any like stops on, on anything. Usually, like I said, a lot of the photos are for people that are, that have personal photos or will send me ads that they've had you know, that I can use, but majority of the photos that I have in my second book are personal photos. How cool. So these are things from like archives that a lot of people haven't seen before that you're, you're compiling. And putting together. I hadn't seen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I was, it was like, kind of like Christmas when people send me photos, I get really excited. It's like Christmas morning. It's like, woohoo, you know, so kind of a neat thing. I had a couple photos that I had gotten. There were a couple stables in Detroit and had never knew that they even existed and all wow. that. He sent me the pictures and I'm like, wow, this is great. Yeah, yeah, that that is yeah. so neat. And, and you know, that's the beautiful thing about being a writer, being an author, having an interest in something and telling a story. I mean, you're you're sharing a story and a history in Michigan, which is your beloved state of a beloved breed right. that you care about of horses that might not have gotten told if you hadn't taken on the no. project. No. And that and that is the beautiful thing. Like, they, you know, there's a lot of conversations now about history being lost or written over, yeah. you know, so you, you are putting this story out there and you're trying to inspire other people in other States to tell a similar story. So right. the rich history of this breed is caught. I mean, I think that, that that is a really cool, powerful thing about being an author. And I commend you for, for taking that on and being so passionate oh, about you. it. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely something that I never thought I would be so passionate about, you know, like I said, I failed my creative writing class in high school so I thought oh I'm never gonna you know do anything I had thought about a long time ago about writing and all that and then this just kind of basically popped into my you know into my lap and I thought you know and then when I talked to my friend Lynn and I thought I'm just gonna run with it and see what happens and then you know so this is you know this is what I get I mean this is the end result I'm thrilled and I'm super excited about my second one because my second one has really got a lot of pictures and information and stuff that I have dug deep I mean I like I said I felt like an archaeologist out on a dig because it was wasn't easy getting some of the information but I got it that's awesome and you know that that's the thing too like first of all you know if you have a dream and you want to accomplish something it doesn't matter if you you know did well in your creative writing class if you want to do it you can do it and you saw something through to the end and now you're starting a second project and with practice makes perfect right you get better and better and better as you do this and don't forget like no author is an island right that's what editors are for that's what you know graphic designers are for that's what you know designers of any sort are for is to help you put out the very best product not only that but the people you're talking to that give you inspirations like your friend inspired you for the layout for your second book so remember 
to use the community of people around you to help get the creative juices flowing, but, and help make your product better. And, and it sounds like you're exactly doing that. And, yeah. and you weren't stopped. You know, that's, that's the oh. biggest thing about writing a book is just not being stopped, you know, because our conversations in our head can tell us so many things that oh, yeah. keep us from putting the words on the page. But if you have a passion and a fire to do it, just keep going and look at you. Oh, yeah. You're on book two. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. My, in my, in my other cover, my book cover, that, that's also that horse that's on there is by Jim Walls mm. um, also. And then my, my girlfriend, Stacy Kitchen, who I've known for 30 years, we went to high school together. She designed my book cover front mm -hmm. and back. That's awesome. So, you know, so it was kind of nice having that personal touch and all that. I'm a big fan of Jim's. Mm -hmm. And so I always wanted to have his artwork on my books somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't think of a, you know, that was other thing that you have to think about too. Is like, what do I want on my, you know, on my book cover? And the first thing I thought of was, I wanted Jim Wall's saddlebred on my book. And that's exactly what I got. I messaged him and I said, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And he's like, okay, you know, so and Jim's a big fan of mine too. Mm -hmm. You know, so that helps. Um, you know, I possibly could have a third book that I'm possibly rolling around. And that's also going to have a Jim Wall's horse on the cover. So yeah. go with what, go with what works. And it sounds like yeah. he's well known in, in that breed. So, I mean, I'm, that's yeah. perfect example of putting the right fit for your cover that will, you know, make your potential readers. I really identify with your work. That's smart move. Right. Yeah. And Heidi, I have really enjoyed talking to you today. A fellow Michigander makes me happy to hear, hear you talk about Michigan. I, I love Michigan. My family is still there. Can you share with readers where they can find more information about you and your books? Sure. My book is the first one. It's on Amazon.com. All you have to do is just type in Gated in the Great Lakes, and it shows up just like this. Uh, and it's also on BarnesandNoble.com. You can get it at the Saddlebred Museum at the Kentucky Horse Park. It's also at Meadowbrook Hall in their gift shop. I also have it at the Fenton Open Bookstore. I think they have one copy left. That's, you know, basically where you can get it. I have an FB page. So if you get on there and just type in Gated in the Great Lakes, you know, it'll pull up, hit the like button. And I try to keep that updated at least monthly mm -hmm. with any updates on the book and then anything, you know, and I try to roll in my first book too, but people are really anxious to get my second one. So I have that. Um, and then I have my website, which is www.gatedinthegreatlakes, all one word, .weebly.com. Fantastic. And I will make sure to link to all those places in your show notes so people can get directly to you and get awesome. updates about the second book and pick up a copy of the first book if they haven't read it yet. You know, I never thought in a million years I'd be, you know, writing a book on a horse that I'm so passionate about. And then I I love and the people that are around it. You know, there was a quote one time I heard from, this is going to sound odd, from Sister Mary Clarence from Sister Act. She said, you know, if all you can think about when you wake up is being a a writer or whatever her quote was and all that, then she, you know, then you're destined to be a writer. And that's exactly how I am. I wake up and sometimes I get book ideas at three o'clock in the morning and write stuff down and ideas come from all over the place. You just never know. You know, if you love what you do, you, you do it. And, you know, you don't really question it. I completely agree. Heidi, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. 
Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.